Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Who are we? How do we think? Why do we want to do these investments? Are we just trying to sell something? I mean, those are the real, real questions you want to ask anybody, right? Are we really good marketers, but maybe not good investment managers? And that's a big one today for us with operating partners. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. I'm really pleased today to have Mark Curry with us. He's been an avid real estate investor for over 17 years and has sourced, underwritten, acquired, managed, and sold both residential and commercial real estate investments through multiple markets in the U.S. He's analyzed hundreds of investment opportunities and has successfully bought, renovated, sold, and invested in over 120 properties with a combined value of over a billion dollars and created and managed over 45 real estate partnerships with investors. He's now running and managing SMK Capital Management. Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. So the first thing we like to do is just understand your journey, where you came from. How did you get into real estate? And then from real estate, how did you get to be an operator, a syndicator? Can you just kind of give us your whole story there? Yeah. So I started out a career working in finance, working for a large company, about 80,000 people, Jim, doing a lot of financial analysis, budgets and planning, internal auditing, a lot of spreadsheets, right? And I got into real estate on the side, like many of us do. I think my first investment was in 2005, pre-recession. After work, going to the property, fixing it up, very much hands-on, very much an active investment. The market appreciated pretty significantly. I thought I was a genius, right? And so I pulled out appreciation and capital, partnered with my brother, bought a four unit that was 75% vacant and off to the races we went and just basically fell in love with real estate, Jim, early on in my finance career because I could analyze it. I could change the value, a tangible, produced income, grew in value, you name it. There was a lot of reasons and fell in love. And so 
what I ended up doing a few years later, we started investing as a family. So my father, my parents, my brothers, my cousins, anyone that would listen, we would uh, <laughs> essentially partner with them. And we started buying more properties. This is during the recession, you know, 2008, nine, etc. Really by getting stuff very heavily discounted at the time compared to what they were worth a year or two before. And we did that for a few years. And by 2010 or so, we decided to basically parted ways with my corporate gig and started our own firm. My father and I partnered up, created our company, SMK Capital Management. And the goal at the time, Jim, was just to keep doing what we were already doing, right? We were finding great deals and creating a lot of value. And the marketplace was giving us tons of opportunity. And we started to expand and raise capital from others outside of our family, right? We basically, I think the first time we raised money outside of the family, we invited a lot of friends over to our home, gave them a PowerPoint presentation in our basement, food, drinks, that kind of thing, and started raising money just kind of organically through people that already liked us and trusted us, of course. And so that's how we got our start. We started out as an operating partner, Jim. We were basically handling everything from A to Z as far as acquisitions, financing, managing asset management, property management. We had a staff. We built a portfolio of around 50 properties in a few different states, a lot of flips as well. But we also had, when I left corporate America, Jim, I had a 401k that was sitting idle, right? No more matching, no more contributions really. And so I needed to find a place to invest some of my own personal retirement funds. So I went on a, call it a two-year networking binge where I just met tons of people in Southern California at the time where I was living by going to meetup groups, meetings, investment groups, you name it, and just networking my tail off. And through that process, we found some really great operating partners and started investing kind of as an LP passively to diversify, right? To get that capital outside of things that we were already doing as a firm and personally, and fell in love with some asset classes that you could kind of point to at the time and say, hey, this has been doing really well during a time, Jim, as you know, where there wasn't much that was doing very well, right? So mobile homes, yeah. self-storage, some apartments, a few other asset classes, et cetera. And so we kind of did both for a number of years. We were the operating partner on many deals. We were also syndicating some of these larger commercial institutional quality deals through relationships that we had built. But by 2017, we essentially moved all of our focus to what we consider today syndications, private equity, raising capital from our investor group to invest alongside best-in-class operators that do one thing very well. And we partner with them and really focusing on diversification, income, growth, you name it. So that's been a bit of our journey there. That's fantastic. So talk a little bit about, you said you started kind of as an operator, right? I mean, that's the path that a lot of us have, right? You start with a single family home or rental or a small multi or whatever, and, and then you catch the bug and off you go, which is what you did. But in your journey, you were an operator. So that's what we think of as a true syndicator, right? But you pivoted and now you're raising capital for other operators, right? You're a capital allocator, basically. So why the switch? What made you think, hey, I'm going to just find a few trusted partners, best in class, as you said, and have them operate the deals and you're just going to bring the money and some expertise. Why'd you make that switch? A few reasons, Jim. Yeah, good question. So we were doing both for many years, right? And so we could actually point and look at data and results and risk, of course, as well. And so when we analyzed kind of both strategies and where the market was going, okay, remember, this is 
2017 when we decided to shift all into commercial institutional quality syndications. We felt that the market was better equipped to continue to provide us income, stability, growth with less risk by diversifying our capital, our investors' capital, again, across asset classes, Jim, across strategies, across regions, across operating partners, because everything just keeps going up and to the right, Jim, and we'll see how long that goes for. But we've always had our eye on the market and trying to kind of make the best bet for what we have out there and what's given us attractive returns, right? There's always a sweet spot we want to achieve. What's the highest return we can get with the lowest amount of risk? So if you think about it that way, that's essentially where we felt be more prudent to shift over into what we had been doing exclusively with partners and syndications. You mentioned diversifying, and I always say I like to diversify by market, sponsor, asset class, and sometimes some small things, other things in there like maybe debt structure or something like that. But you mentioned diversifying also among those things, but also across strategies. Can you talk about what you mean by diversification along the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So it means a few things when I mention that. One is income, the other is growth. Sometimes you have one more favorable than the other. And sometimes you have a blend and sometimes it's all growth, right? And so that's one way of diversifying across strategy. Also duration, Jim, investment duration is part of strategy. So pre-COVID, we didn't look at short-term deals. And short-term to me is less than five years. We were very well positioned to, essentially, we, we assumed there was going to be a recession in 2018. We saw a lot of fundamentals out there, thinking that we were pretty long in the cycle. We started preparing for that, Jim. We created a recession-resistant fund. The purpose of that fund was to combine lowly correlated asset classes into a portfolio for investors where we could withstand a recession, right? And continue to perform and not have to sell and be a seller at the wrong time. And so everything as far as duration in that portfolio was projected to be five to 10 year holds on purpose. I would say post COVID, but we're not quite post COVID, but I'll say by Q3 of 2020 or so, we started noticing a change in the marketplace. We had been tracking it for a while. And I'll preface that by saying, we stopped investing entirely for about six, seven months in 2020. We just put all pencils down and analyzed, watched, waited, ton of homework, ton of conversations with savvy groups, folks looking at their portfolios, looking at our portfolio, looking at macro level trends, you name it. But by Q3, we realized essentially there's not going to be distress and the demand for what we were doing, not just from investors, but from residents, our customers, right, was extremely high. And we realized that there was this strong tailwind that we wanted to get in front of. And what I mean by that is there's significant market appreciation, significant demand. And we started seeing a lot of rent growth by Q4, Q1 of 2021, et cetera. And so we decided late in 2020 to adjust our diversification strategy to include shorter term deals, Jim, right? So prior to that, we were only doing medium to long term and started looking at, uh, call it two to three year holds as well. And so that's part of some of the changes that we've adapted through these market cycles. And why short term now? Is it still concerned about the recession, interest rates, inflation, all of that combined? Because I'm also trying to shorten, when I'm looking at a passive investment, if all other things being equal, I'd much prefer to get in something for three years than for five. But talk about why that shift. Yeah, so we think that the landscape continues to 
have challenges. And we've said this for a number of years. And that's long-term, I would say more than five years. It's quite questionable where we'll be, where asset pricing will be, where interest rates will be, where cap rates will be, where supply and demand will be. I mean, all of those variables that go into risk and return is harder today, I think, to accurately project. And so we don't try to do that, right? We invest based on fundamentals and sound conservative underwriting so we can withstand the unknown, the volatility. But the short term for us, at least in the last couple of years, has presented an opportunity to take advantage of a specific type of business model, Jim. And I'll review with you what that is and what that means. But essentially, we focus a lot on value add, heavy renovations, manipulation of net operating income, right? We want to grow net operating income as quickly and as much as possible as we can. And one of the best ways to do that is to come into a property and make it a lot better, right? Increase revenue, reduce expenses, increase occupancy, inject a lot of CapEx dollars into the asset and have it perform much better, right? So if you do that on a apartment building, for example, one of the areas that we've been focusing on short-term is we'll underwrite as if we're going to come into an asset that is called 1980s vintage, Jim, a few hundred units that hasn't been renovated in decades and it's poorly managed. We underwrite as if we're going to renovate the whole property, right? All 200 units. And we project that out. And we are quite conservative with post-renovation rents, with conservative with our assumptions on natural rent growth from the market. But then when we get into the deal, what we find, Jim, is that we've been in a flat or compressing cap rate environment. And what we underwrite to is a growing, expanding cap rate environment. And so what's happened several times is if you, again, set yourself up to win by conservative underwriting and you plan to renovate all the units, but by the time you've got 25% of the property renovated, you've created a blueprint that you can then hand to another investment group or a buyer and say, look, if you put this much money into these units, you're going to get this much rent because we've already done it a quarter of the property or so. And there's a ton of value to that, Jim, for another investor group. It's a lot lower risk for them on the value add model, right? They can say, wow, okay, I already know exactly what paint colors to use, what finishes to use, the the countertops, the stainless steel appliances, you name it. All I got to do is go finish the project and I'll be able to create a lot of value growth. And so the buyer of that asset after a year or two, for example, will usually pay a premium for that lower risk. And so if we're projecting, I'll give you an example, you know, let's say going in cap rate on this type of deal is three and a half percent, Jim, right? Some of these markets, Phoenix, Vegas, Texas, you name it. But we're projecting an exit cap rate of 5% by year three. And in reality, we're able to get three and a quarter, three and a half percent exit cap rate, and we've grown NOI substantially, then you end up meeting or beating your projected returns in a much shorter period of time. And so that's one of the reasons we like shorter term deals today. Again, we're still conservatively underwriting, planning for the market to change with exit cap rate expansion. But in reality, this supply demand disequilibrium and a lot of the other fundamentals of income and growth that people are seeking more and more of these days are hard to come by. And so you end up finding yourself, setting yourself up to outperform in some of these deals. And how sustainable is that approach? Or is it that you have the ability to change your business plan, right? Because you underwrite for the five-year hold and renovating all the units, but you're selling after two or three years, renovating 25%. So I guess there's two questions there. 
you're able to pivot and, and do a different exit if you want to, but also how sustainable is that business model or will you switch again when the markets change? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it all depends, Jim, on when the markets change, but also how, what's going to happen, right? We all know that interest rates are going up and they're going to continue to go up. And so we always project that in our underwriting assumptions that interest rates are going to keep going up. We also project, of course, that cap rates are going to go up. And so assuming both those do actually happen, which may be part of the assumption and the question if, if and when markets change, we're kind of already planning for that with our underwriting. And so does it mean that you're going to be able to hit huge home runs still? Probably not, right? I think the margins are tighter. The cost of the uh, price per unit, cap rate, et cetera, is all going to get a little bit more competitive. It already has a little bit, but not a ton. And so I guess in short, we're already expecting the pricing to tighten up and to see a lot slower appreciation than what we've seen the last couple of years. We're already expecting rent growth to stabilize, normalize, call it what you want, but go back to normal. And that's essentially what we underwrite to. And so most deals don't work, Jim, because if you're conservatively underwriting, you're just not going to be able to show a return right, on your projections. And so we try and find those that we think have a, a very unique situation, a very special story, a very special business plan, where again, the end of the goal at the end of the day, Jim, is always to meet or beat projected returns, right? So we'll see where it goes, but I think we're already kind of looking several years out with our analysis on these deals to really protect the downside and assume that the markets are changing right below our feet as we speak. Right. And you mentioned rent growth might be stabilizing because it's just been going up and up and up, right? So take a market like Phoenix. Rent increases are huge. I was looking at a deal. I don't remember which deal it was, but the pro forma had 15% increases two years in a row, right? And my question is, how sustainable is that? How realistic is that? I know you can't just on a dime increase the rents 15% in year one because they're all staggered. So when the pro forma is that, it's been happening, right? So is it unrealistic? Should you run from that deal? Or should you think, hey, you know what? These guys are in Phoenix. I know what they're doing. So can you talk a little bit about that doesn't feel like it's stabilizing yet? Yeah, yeah. I'll mention it this way, Jim. Rent growth can come from two sources, natural market appreciation, which essentially means, hey, we've got a tenant in unit two, his rent comes up for renewal, he's paying 1100 a month, we don't have to do anything, he wants to stay, we can raise it to 1200 a month, and he's not going anywhere, or she, right? And that's natural market appreciation, because you're essentially just increasing the rent on the existing unit to the market. If that's 15% in the underwriting, I would be very concerned at this stage in the cycle. I probably would run from that deal. But if you combine it with, hey, we're also going to renovate 50 units in the first year, and we know that post-renovation rents, you're taking that $1,100 unit, you're going to have the tenant relocate, and then you're going to come in and inject $10,000, $15,000 of renovations into that unit, and you know that you can get $1,400 a month, and then you combine the two, natural market appreciation from tenant turnovers versus CapEx dollars being injected into the unit and getting more for a nicer unit. If that's 15%, there might be a little bit more merit to it if the total there, but at the end of the day, we're not underwriting to 15% rent growth on our deals. And here's how we do it. Like for Phoenix, Jim, we've been investing in Phoenix for a number of years and you can dig down. That's one of the beauties of our asset class and our trade, Jim, is we have insider information, right? You can get so much data down to the sub market as to what 
rents are doing, what they have been doing, occupancy levels, et cetera, that you can pretty accurately estimate, call it three, six, 12 months out where the rents are probably going to go. And so, for example, we recently did a Phoenix deal in a submarket in Phoenix that had a projected rent growth in 2022 of over 20%, which is what we saw in 2021. We didn't put that into our model. No way. We had, I think, 4.5% projected for 2022. And so what ends up happening is if you can get the deal to pencil by smartly being uh, conservative on the underwriting, the projections, well, what happens if you do get that 20%, right? 1100 goes up to 1350 without doing any renovations. Well, now you're setting yourself up to outperform. I mean, that's always the goal, right? Meet or beat the projections. And so that's one thing I would say. But yeah, if you're looking generally at deals that have a lot of appreciation built into the assumptions, I would definitely be very cautious. Hey, Love Fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe This. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Yeah, I think you explained it well. You're cautious, but then also you need to understand the story, right, behind it. And I would much prefer someone to say, hey, we think we can get 20%, but we're going to make the deal work at 4% and outperform. Then I think we can get 20 and then you end up with four. Investors aren't going to be real happy with that, right? You want to have positive surprises. I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about how you vet sponsors, because basically that's your main job now, right? You're not operating the property as much as you are vetting the sponsor. And how do you find those best-in-class operators and what kind of due diligence do you do? And how can that relate to what a passive investor does? Because clearly we can't do the due diligence you do. We do a different kind of due diligence. Can you talk about your process? Sure. Yeah, I would mention this too, Jim. We definitely vet sponsors, people, right? That's critical. But we also got to vet the deals. And so it's a two-step process. And we've invested with a lot of sponsors over the years that we still pass on some of their deals. And so they both have to work, the people and the deal. And that still happens today. We work with a lot of operating partners and sponsors where they'll share an opportunity with us and it just doesn't pencil for us, even though we have active capital with them, even though we have done great with them. Doesn't mean every deal works for us. And so there's kind of two steps there. As far as underwriting people, a few thoughts come to mind. It takes a long time, Jim. It takes a long time. So we've been, again, started underwriting people kind of with our own capital. Years and years ago, we still do that today. A lot of times if we're kind of new with an operating partner, we'll test them with our own money first, see how they do. Because let's be frank, there's a lot of savvy folks out there that sound great. They answer all the questions really well, and they look like they know what they're doing, but it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes they can drop the ball. Sometimes they find out that reporting starts to get thin, details, transparency after you write the check start leaving you a little questioning whether or not maybe you made the right decision or is this going to go the way you thought and that kind of stuff. And so vetting before you invest and after you invest doing due diligence. I mean, we do a lot of asset management. And so when an operating partner sends us an update, there's usually a call and a lot of emails back and forth to get more information. And I'm sure you've seen this where 
you might scratch your head asking yourselves a lot of questions after getting day. like, well, it doesn't really tell me everything I need to know here to feel completely comfortable. I agree. That's how a lot of operating partners operate. They just don't give you a ton of information. And so the vetting is a continuous ongoing process before, during the investment life cycle. Now, when it comes to people, we kind of have, I guess, three buckets that I tell people about, right? We've vetted over 120 operating partners over the years, got yes, maybe, and no. And the yes bucket is the smallest amount, as you can imagine, about probably about 14, 15 groups today. The maybe bucket is probably around 55 or so, and the remainder are no. And so it's a process for us, takes time, takes a ton of questioning, asking for information, and the no's can come quickly and they can come very slowly too, Jim. It depends on how they respond, their transparency. We look very closely today, of course, at track record, specialty. We look for groups that do one thing very well and they just repeat over and over and over. It just helps reduce risk. And so most of our operators today have at least 500 million in assets under management. They've done very well for many years, some of them for decades. And essentially, maybe it's a little bit of a rinse and repeat and kind of boring process. We like that. Again, reduces risk. You also want to look, of course, at for some tips. It's like, look at references. Ask for some. Ask for more. And then ask those folks for other people that have invested with them. Call them. Quiz them. Go online. Go on LinkedIn. See who they're connected to. Get your own references. Right? Do a lot of homework. We run background checks on everybody. We just, I'll say this, Jim, our operating partners come kind of usually from one or two places. And that's, we've invested with them before and we vetted them. We like them. They're continuing to do quite well. Or they're referred to us from another investor who can say the same thing. And so that's basically where we get our people from. Interesting. So then if someone wants to invest with you, that's a whole nother process, right? So if you were to invest with capital allocator like yourself, instead of directly with the operating partner, what should a passive investor look at? How should they evaluate you and how should they screen you to make sure that they know you and they're comfortable with you? Because you're going to be picking investments, I mean, not for them, but you're going to be still very much involved in the process. So they can't just vet the underlying operator. They need to vet you. So what are some questions they should be asking people like you? I mean, just regarding us and our background is like, get to know us, right? Who are we? How do we think? Why do we want to do these investments? Are we just trying to sell something, right? I mean, those are the real questions you want to ask anybody, right? Are we really good marketers, but maybe not good investment managers? That's a big one today for us with operating partners. So ask the same question of us, right? What makes you special? And then, of course, from there, same questions, Jim. Do your homework. Run background checks, right? Go talk yeah. to references, See what kind of folks you're actually relying on to execute. And at the end of the day, you, you want to be able to say you're really excited about it, right? And you feel thrilled that you're able to work with people that are hopefully going to do very well for you time and time and time again, and always have your best interest in mind, right? And so there's a process there that we use, of course, with our operating partners and a process there that can also be used for investors looking at us. In the past, I've always thought it's better to invest directly with the sponsor, right? I'm going right to the person who's running the show. But lately, I find going through a company like that does what you do, Capital Allocator, I can work and, and approve you as a sponsor using my process, like you said, referrals or however I screen sponsors to get to know people. And then having you do the rest of the work, right? So it's even, it's almost more passive than regular passive investing. And so talk a little bit about what the benefit of going with someone like you rather than directly to the underlying operator? Sure. Yeah. Good question, Jim. I'll say a few things. 
you get to piggyback off of a company like ours, experience, vetting process, relationships, and of course, asset management, and not have to do all of that yourself, number one. And it's a daunting task today, especially with the amount of sponsors, operating partners out there, Jim, and you go online and you can find 100 deals yeah. tomorrow that you can invest in, right? And so yeah. it's a lot of time, it takes a lot of time. And so we essentially help with that process and reduce that for our folks. And we think in turn, there's a lower risk there because you're getting vetted people, vetted deals. You can also, of course, get more diversification because we do this across multiple asset classes. And so we can provide our folks with opportunities in different regions, different assets, like we talked about, right? Different people, different durations, you name it, income, growth, et cetera. And essentially, you can leverage our experience and network to gain access to more deals and operators that you otherwise may not have found on your own or being even able to underwrite or evaluate the risks or the merits of the deal. And then we also put together, Jim, funds. And so we'll combine different deals together into one offering. And so that's a unique offering typically you can't get anywhere else where we'll put several deals together that can provide investors with the advantages of investing in a specific deal, but also downside protection by spreading your capital into multiple deals. And then that fund essentially is a lot more diversified, it's lower risk, and you can invest in it at a much lower minimum than you could on your own if you wanted to put all those deals together into your portfolio. So to put that into context, Jim, you know, a recession-resistant fund, we invested into nine different deals across three different asset classes. It was over 12,000 units total. Our minimum investment for one of our folks was, was $50,000. That's the minimum. To go and create that fund on your own, you'd have to have 1.2 million, right? And so you just couldn't do it in that theory. And so we're constantly looking at how can we provide folks with something unique, something that maybe they can't get otherwise and ensure that they're going to be in good hands. That's always the end of the game, the, the goal for everything we're doing. Yeah, that's interesting that creating a fund like that, you said you can get into something that usually be $1.2 million to get in all those deals. You can get into it for 50. That's similar to, we use a company called TribeVest that allows us to invest as a group. And it's not the same thing because you're more of a professional where when you're investing in a group, you're maybe with your buddies or people you've met. So there's different degrees of it, but it's kind of similar in the way that it effectively allows you to diversify and get lower minimums on some things. You also mentioned the different asset classes, recession-resistant asset classes. What asset classes are those that you believe are recession-resistant and why? Oh, yeah. Gosh, how much time do you have? <laughs> so, I'll keep it short, Jim, because there's a lot of information out there that people can search. But essentially, recession resistance means that the asset and the investment has a high likelihood of continuing to perform during various economic conditions, right? And so if you think about mobile home parks, it's usually number one as far as recession resistance goes. You're dealing with one of the most affordable housing solutions in the country. Uh, supply is limited, fixed, or possibly going down due to barriers to entry, due to zoning restrictions, you name it. There's a lot of reasons why they're just not making many, very many mobile home parks anymore these days. And a lot of them are actually being demolished and then redeveloped into a higher and best use. So that's one of the reasons you have a flat supply. Demand continues to go up from residents for affordable housing. That's a big problem in this country. We don't see any type of short-term solution. And so again, going back to Econ 101, supply demand disequilibrium is a big part. And at the end of the day, you're offering folks one of the most affordable housing options. So you see during recessions, historically, and there's charts going back to the 90s, Jim, 
that net operating income growth remains stable or grows during downturns. I mean, there's not a lot of stuff you can say that about. Right. So that's ones for mobile homes. Self-storage is another for some of the similar reasons. People during a recession or during economic trouble will typically change something in their life. And that change, moving, downsizing, et cetera, often results in increase in demand to store their stuff. And so we've seen that correlation over cycles. And then we also focus a lot on what we call workforce housing, apartment communities in growth markets close to transit that are still affordable based on the local median income. And so it's a very specific type of apartment that we like to also invest in that also withstand at the test of time. If you look back far enough and look at some of the results of the demand, the rent growth, net operating income growth, value stabilization over tough periods. So those are three that are top of mind when it comes to recession resistance. Talk a little bit about the workforce, affordable housing, because people use those words, but I'm not sure it's always clear what that means because most of the offerings you see out there are, hey, we're going to do a big value add and we're going to raise rents. I'm sure you'd want to do that with all of it. But what's the difference between a typical multifamily property and the workforce housing or affordable housing type uh, properties? So yeah, workforce housing is essentially a affordable housing option for the local community based on the median household income or the average income per, per person as well. And so you're offering a housing option that can be afforded by the local community. And so there's a, a formula, Jim, right? You look and see how much can the local community afford? Do the post-renovation rents fit that bill, right? And so you, you might want to look at the rent to income ratio, right? We look at typically one month's rent when we're looking at post-renovation rent. So if it's $1,500 a month for a two-bedroom after we renovate the unit, you'll need typically around $35,000, $40,000 local average income to be able to afford that rent. And so if it's lower than that or significantly lower than that, then it's probably not necessarily affordable from that definition. The other thing to keep in mind too, thinking about that is for two bedrooms, we're finding more and more two-bedroom apartments are being occupied by dual incomes where both people are working. And so it, it makes it even more affordable because then technically, if you're paying $750 and your roommate or spouse or partner is also paying $750 and you've got two incomes, then it's a lot easier to make ends meet as well. And so those are the kind of the apartments we focus on where we look again at our post-renovation rents and make sure that the local population can still afford them. Interesting. That's a good definition. I haven't heard that looking at it that way before, because for me, it's always hard. All the multifamily, they look the same. You know, everyone's putting in granite, they're making the pool look pretty and all that. And I guess you want that in any kind of apartment, right? Whether it's workforce or not, but tying it to what the income is makes sense to me, I think. Sure. Yeah. It's important to make sure that there's going to be a strong demand once you're done doing all the work. So the last question I ask on the podcast is, what is a great podcast or two that you listen to? If you got real estate ones, that's great. If you just have ones for your free time, that's good as well. Sure. Yeah. I think a couple that come to mind, Jim, I like Hunter Thompson's Cashflow Connections. He provides a lot of great interviews with folks from a little bit more of an economic outlook as well, which is something we watch very closely. We like Invest Like a Billionaire, same concept. They have uh, great guests, great content as well. Obviously, yours, Jim, is awesome. And I think that's enough. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's, that's very kind. But yeah, you're also looking at things from 
an investor standpoint, someone who's deep in the industry as well, and you provide tons of great content. Well, thank you. Yeah, those first two, those are great. I listen to those as well. Third one, I appreciate the recommendation. I don't listen to that one because I can't listen to my own voice anymore. (laughs) So I appreciate that. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, get on your uh, newsletter list or deal list, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, just check us out. We have a website, of course. It's uh, smkcap.com. Our company name, again, is SMK Capital Management. Tons of information on our website, Jim. We've got investment examples, recent stuff we've done, a lot of uh, questions about us, and we try and be as transparent as possible. People can sign up there to learn more. They can email us, just reach out, and happy to connect. Excellent. I will put all of that in the show notes. And again, Mark, we appreciate you being on the podcast. It was a great show. And we'll definitely be uh, watching you guys as you continue to grow. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MAG Capital Partners, a leading investment firm specializing in single-tenant industrial real estate with triple net leases. MAG invests in properties with established tenants in manufacturing, cold storage, and distribution. These income investments are designed for strong, tax-advantaged cash flow from day one and have historically generated above-market returns. With approximately $500 million of real estate acquisitions, MAG Capital Partners has extensive experience and a history of profitable exits. To learn more about MAG Capital Partners, visit www.magcp.com. That was a good conversation with Mark. I've got to know him a little bit over the past few months, and I think he's a really good guy. Some of the things that stood out for me is, you know, I'm always about diversification, asset class by sponsor, by market, and some other metrics as well. He added income versus growth, which makes sense if you want cash flow or you're looking for appreciation, depending on where you are. But having a nice mix of that is probably a good idea. And then duration, which is another one I've been looking at lately, is to get things to be shorter duration now because there's so much uncertainty in the market that I don't want to lock in for longer term deals. So we were kind of alike in that. And then I really like the pivot when he's into a deal. He plans to renovate all the units, but once he gets to 25% or so, if the market's still going great, he's got proof of concept and he can sell that property before his business plan is complete because he's de-risked it somewhat for the buyer because they know, hey, if we do these renovations, here's the rent we're going to get. So it makes it a lot easier to sell. And a pivot is what you want right now is the ability to change the business plan while it's going. And then rent growth. I think this was really interesting because I always look at rent growth. I'm like, it's 15%. That's too high or whatever the numbers are. But he put it into two buckets, right? Market appreciation, which is the rent you're going to get basically if you don't do anything. So that's one component. If that's 15%, big red flag. But the other is the post-renovation rent. So if those go up by large amounts, well, that makes more sense depending on the market, depending on the property and all that. And I still am curious or I would ask a lot of questions if they think they're going to get 15% in year one because it's so tough to get everything done in year one to raise the whole book 15%. But if you look at those two different aspects, market appreciation versus post-renovation rents, I think that gives you a little bit different perspective on it. And then we always say screen the sponsor, make sure the sponsor and the deal comes second. And I think Mark agrees with that, but he also added, you still have to look at the deal. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in 
make sure you're good with the sponsor and you know, like, and trust and all of that. And sometimes they send you a deal and you're like, I'm just going to do it because I vetted the sponsor properly. You still need to look at the deal. You still need to analyze the deal to make sure it still fits within the parameters you're looking for. And whenever I meet one of these guys, and I shouldn't, I kept saying people like you, I didn't mean anything by it other than he's more of a capital allocator and less than a true syndicator like we normally think of. But I like that if he finds a new sponsor, a new asset class or something, he's going to test it with his own money, his family's money before he puts it out to investors. And I really like it when one of those guys, capital allocators, has that kind of plan because they test it with their own money. They're eating what they're cooking. And I really like that. And then lastly, a lot of people are talking about recession resistant asset classes. And he put out there as mobile home parks, which he gave great reasons for it. Self-storage, same. There's reasons why that's uh, recession resistant. And then workforce housing, that's kind of a new one. I mean, obviously we've talked about it, but just kind of digging down and getting a better idea of what he means by workforce housing was helpful for me at least. So I'm in one deal with Mark and brand new, so I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on him and I'll probably sit on the sidelines for a while to see how this deal pans out before I look for a second one. But as I said, I like Mark. He's come highly recommended, so I'm going to keep my eye on him. And that's all we have today in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>